0: Welcome to the Nine O'Clock Show Weekly Podcast. Brendan, Courtney here with a compilation of our best interviews this week. On Monday, car salesman turned photographer, Noel McIntyre chatted to us about his spectacular new book Re-Raw Mullingar A Kyol Chronicle On Tuesday I was joined with the impressive Dr. Abeba Marhane for all things artificial intelligence We chatted to the brains behind Vacious Ireland's answer to shapewear sisters Mary Tierney and Sinead O'Brien Thursday brought us filmmaker Ken Wardrop on his new documentary So This Is Christmas which highlights why Christmas isn't a joyful time for all and on Friday the City Library in Cork gets a special donation from Jessica Marb who honours her late husband with the slow camera experience Change. That's it for this week. I hope you enjoy the podcast. During the summer, Mullingar hosted its second Fla in as many years. And while many spent the festival making memories, a photographer spent his time preserving them. Last week he released his book, Re-Raw Mullingar Flakyol Chronicle, a book of original photography which showcases the town, the music, and the human spirit in all its glory. Noel McIntyre, you're very welcome. Thank Thanks, you. Brendan. Thank it you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I'd say you're delighted to have this book in your hand now, are you?
1: Yeah, I am. It's been a labour of love uh, and it's been a hectic two months, really, uh, getting that. And, it, you know, it all had to happen in two months because the... Now, just to say, that's unheard
0: of in terms of publishing, right? So yeah. So you, 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 you decided to do this on August 20th?
1: Yeah, because the flag This didn't year? Finish.
0: This year, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah.
1: That's amazing. And it's, it's funny it's to say that that's unheard of, but that's actually... The way I roll, I don't, there's (laughs) no rules in in what I do, so I don't don't look at the rule book to see how long does it take to publish a book, I just say I have to get it done and I have to get it out for the Christmas market,
0: which means I need it in Mullingar and it only arrived last Friday. Congratulations, congratulations. And I have to say, I'm holding it. It's like, it's a, it's, it's a, a bigger than an A4. It's like a small A3, beautiful coffee table book. Rhi Mullingar, A Flaky Old Chronicle, Noel MacDurr. And amazing, it's, it's a really well thank produced you. book. So I have thank to say, so even you. though the short time, you, you, you've nailed it, you've done really well. The, the, before we get dive into it, I love the story about when you first showed Joe Caner the, the the brains behind the flag, mm. the book, and mm. he was like, "Could you change the cover
1: now mm. and
2: put
0: <laughs> put instruments on the front?" And <laughs> tell me about that story.
1: Well, uh, you see. Um while, uh, while we set the wheels in motion, with the de- I chose a designer, a guy called Eamon O'Sullivan in Ken Mayer. And uh, if, while those wheels were really rocking at 100 mile an hour, I then ha- had to decide on uh, launching it and, and trying to, to get some momentum there. So I thought, uh, who better to contact other than Joe Kinnear? And I set up a meeting in the Mullingar Park Hotel only about six weeks ago. And I said,
0: Joe... Um, just explain to people who joe Canair is. He's the man behind
1: the Fla, yeah, Keola yeah, yeah, Joe is the chairman of the uh, Westmead branch of cultus and he, uh, m- well, m- practically single-handedly uh, brought the Fla back to, to Mullingar. And he, he himself and uh, Willie Penrose and Colette Lynn actually were the three people behind it. So I, I met Joe and at that point we had the the book was was picture lock it was that picture lock in PDF form and I was which means it's kind of bedded in it's done it was a done deal at that stage and the, 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 like the so you the, can't see any changes no no <laughs> and he, nobody really realises what's involved in it I didn't realise certainly didn't realise myself You know, I I had actually 8,000 images, if you could believe it, over two years. And then I I whittled those down to 475. I remember these numbers (laughs) well. And then when I got it to 175, I got uh, a a mate of mine to print two sets of postcards, each image. So you could show something. So I could lay them out all on the floor. I had them pinned to the wall. My wife... Is really has ter- tremendous patience because the house has just turned into something I can't describe. <laughs> they were stuck everywhere, and as well as that, I was up all hours of the night and the morning, moving them and changing them and trying to sequence them. And so we got all that done. But anyway, back to Joe. Um, I, I I presented the the laptop to him. I said, "Look, I, we're I'm launching the book, and I wanted you to." Uh, bring uh, some of the musicians together, bring them back so that we could have a little bit, a little bit more than a book launch. It was, we actually, we wanted to have an event. Very good. And, um, you know, I presented the laptop to Joe and the first thing he said was, can that be changed? (laughs) And uh, I looked at him and I said, no, 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 Joe, that, that can't be changed. And then um, we got to about page... That's three. a bit
0: of a rookie error, though, isn't it? Well, <laughs> yeah, but yeah,
1: I, I'm t- I, looking back on it, it was my own mistake, actually, because he thought I was asking... I've, I've for, been
0: that told, right? Yeah, I have, I have a similar story, yeah. Go
1: on. <laughs> but um, uh, So we got to about page three, and he says, uh, that's not a, a fiddle, that's a violin, or vice versa. And then he says, uh, but page five, he says... Uh, that's not an accordion, that's a concertina. <laughs> and then he says, you didn't go to any of the venues? And I said, no, Joe. And he says, you know, we had the world champions there and we had the schools and we had the band halls and we had the cathedral and we had the church and we had this and we had that. He didn't get any of them. And I said, no, no. And then I said to myself, like, having come from business, I was in business all my life, I just said, I have to, I have to take control of this or else this is just absolutely going to go completely south. He was actually getting high. <laughs> Joking there was, and I, I just turned the laptop back round to me, folded down the lid nice and gently, and I said, Joe, let's start again. Very good, right? This is not a book about musicians or musical instruments or the. the it's not a book for the flack yule and the heron purist Actually, that was Joe's gripe. He said it's not flack yule, it's flack yule and the heron. and. And I even think that's not going to, the designer's not going to like that. That's not going to roll off the tongue on the cover, a flak hole in the Heron Chronicle. And I'm thinking, no, I can't, can't, can't change that, Joe. So I said, Joe, this is a book about what the man on the street saw. Somebody like me who never knew what Flachyall was about, I know very little about traditional Irish music. I don't know a fiddle from a, an, a, a bloody violin or an accordion from a concertina, but it's a documentary reportage of what somebody like me saw every day on the streets of Mullingar as they walked from one bridge down to the other. Yep. And and it's it's an every man's view of what went on. And, you know, like that um, approach, I didn't set out to do that at the very two years ago I this thing was coming to my hometown my backyard and I said look because I I am a storyteller and I'm a filmmaker and I'm a photographer and I said I'm going to go down and see what it's all about you wanted to capture the magic the magic
0: and you did just to say people can't see it right now but you did so uh, yes, you just touched on there you were in business before you ran a car dealership before you became a photographer Yeah, was was photography always in there or how did you make that leap Um, well I
1: think it was, it was attention to detail was always there, and I suppose um, I'm lucky in that I can channel my OCD into into uh, whatever uh, direction takes my fancy at will, you know. And I was yeah. always the same in the motor trade, and I was always good at marketing the place. And I, I would probably still be well. I undoubtedly would still be in the motor trade if it wasn't for the recession in two thousand and eight, nine, and ten. Okay, and. You, know, you had to rethink. Well, I had to reinvent myself. Uh, I, I, It was a family-owned business. We were 50 years in business that year uh, and I was under enormous pressure to not be the one who f- let it fail. Oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, my, I s- spoke to my father who was very ill and he said, Noel, you... He's totally understood the situation and he said, no, you have my complete blessing, whatever you do. But it, it was a matter of navigating an, some kind of an orderly exit, which was extremely difficult. But by making good decisions and having the support of people around me, like my father, i my entire family and my wife, uh, I made those decisions and I, I'm navigating my way through it. So I got out of business and um, I ended up in the, we had a forecourt. So I ended up in the forecourt and I remember saying to myself, I was standing at the till because I had gone out to run the shop there after getting out. I had 64 people working for me wow. at one point and then I went out to the shop and I remember standing on the till and going, look, it's not glamorous, but sure, I'll get a living over it. You know? And yeah. at that time, I was damn glad to get a living over it. Of course, yeah. And yeah. Then, And then what happened was, do you want me to tell? Yeah, all this? no, but it's
0: just it, I'm just what I'm interested is is to make a leap from running a cardio into something so creative as to filmmaking and photography. Yeah, that, that's a, that's not an easy adjustment. really. Well, uh,
1: I suppose it was easy for me. You know, I just I just I made the film. You know, I just made it kind of by accident. So really. what was the
0: film? Just g- g- the g-
1: film was called I Created You, and I was when I was sitting out there in the weight room. I said to the guy, I was actually in here before. I was in Studio One. Um, The film won an award and the RTE Concert Orchestra, the the prize was I was assigned a composer. Wow. And the RTE Concert Orchestra composed an original score for the film in that studio in 2019. And with that then, the film went all over the world. It was a
0: short film, was it?
1: Yeah, short film. And it won 19 awards in 19 countries, including Hollywood. And what year was this? 2019. Well done. And when I came back from Hollywood then... um, so, so, I love that you could say that. When I came back from Hollywood, I used to be a car salesman, though. You, 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 that's there at the core, you know. But uh, when I came back from Hollywood, so I did some Facebook lives and stuff like that out there. And when I came back from Hollywood, I, there was a, an American company contacted me, and the girl said, "Noel, the directors would love to work with you." Wow! And I said, "Well, it's going to be expensive." <laughs> <laughs> and they said, "We love it already." <laughs> Brilliant. (laughs) So I I made a documentary for them. Uh, They were 40 years in business and that was the first commercial job I did and I've been doing that ever since.
0: Congratulations. That's Um, really wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, You also started the Mullingar International Film Festival.
1: Yeah, well that was actually... Tell me about that. That was on the way home from Hollywood and I was sitting on the... (laughs) How many times can you say Hollywood uh, in one interview? I I, I was sitting on the aircraft and I I just remember sitting there on my own and I just remember going... Oh no! I know what's coming next. <laughs> I just, I just knew. <laughs> I, I, I didn't. The whole um, film festival scene was new to me. I yeah. never, never even knew such a thing existed. Yeah. And um, so uh, we, I came home from that place uh, <laughs> in um, September, and uh, we started to plan. I assembled my team so I have a good team of people around me you know and uh, I think with a good team I always say it, the magic can happen when you have the right people that believe in you and you believe in them So now
0: let's go back to the book so uh, where did the journey begin? You're from Mullingar, obviously. You, you know of the Fla. So I, I was really interested. Cultist Kulteri and found Mo- it, it, the event in Mullingar in 1951. But yes. it wasn't hosted there since 1963. So it, the, you, obviously Joe and his, it, the, they brought it back to Mullingar, which is a big deal. Yeah, But you had no real involvement with, with uh, no, flap. no, you know, I
1: didn't. It's like I said, I hadn't a clue. You know, Joe Kinnear had been telling us all that there's going to be, those streets are going to be full of people and he says you're going to have to knock out the windows so they you can get the pints out.
0: There'll be thousands, millions of people and, you know. And he was right. None of us believed him. Oh, really? <laughs> he honest. was going around knocking on doors trying to tell everybody how big it was going to be. Well, he
1: me there was meetings and committees and there was a thousand volunteers involved. I mean, wow. it was an amazing thing. But on on the Monday morning of... The first day, 2022, I drove into town and the guards had very kindly reserved a spot for me to put two bollards in in a place there that I was able to just get the jeep in there. And uh, I stepped out and I, I, just right in front of me was this little girl that set up her stall. Wow. It's the first photo in the book. I saw it, it's fantastic. And, you know, I just said to myself, oh my God, proud to be Irish. <laughs> and then throughout that day then, I began to take little mental notes. I have it here. She's about eight, isn't she? Yeah. And she's selling... She's selling (laughs) crisps and sweets. (laughs) All drinks and snacks.
0: Yeah, it's the cutest thing in her driveway.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and I just said to myself, and I took mental notes and I took notes. So as these images, as these little magic moments uh, began to pop out, and it it was like a a chaotic scene down there. I described it as a cacophony of sound and vision and people and an assault on the senses. But yet I was able to pick out the detail amid the chaos. And, you know, y- your eye is like any muscle. It's it's the more you exercise it and push it and hone it, the better it gets and the sharper it gets. Wow. And over the two, like it's it's a fact, over the two years my eye became really, really sharp and I began to, my approach began to solidify and, you know, within a few days I had a very, very clear approach as to how I was going to record this and I do think it's completely unique. Even the the technical details of how I took the shots, it's just unusual, you know. I shot them all wide open and it's not normal in street photography. So there's a sort of a, there's an influence from my filmmaking experience there. There's a cinematic look to to the images, and also uh, there there, there's, there there are memories of what the man on the streets saw. And I, so, I, what? Give me some examples. What did you see? Well, there's a there's a photograph there of a rogue guitar string that yeah. caught my eye, and you know maybe there was a string that was eighteen inches long coming out of the end of a guitar and it was just boinging away there. But the guy and I thought to myself, what's the What's the story behind that? And, and I, well, he obviously is in the middle of a full flight and he broke a string and he was able to just whip one in <laughs> in a second. And, you know, they're the type of things that caught my eye. And there's another beautiful one there. There's a fiddle. Uh, there's a young boy playing uh, fiddle in, in a session outside one of the pubs. And I remember arriving down and, you know, the scene, the scene was unspectacular. But the fiddle caught my eye. And I said to myself, that's not this young boy's fiddle that's his great-grandfather's fiddle. Mm. And then I began to think, you know, I took a beautiful, close photo of it and and the patina on it and the the markings on it. And I began to say, what stories could that fiddle tell? Mm. And I thought to myself, it surely has waked somebody in a cottage by an open fire. It surely has celebrated births, marriages, and maybe even the birth of a nation over a couple of hundred years. And I just thought... To me, those, it's they were just magic and the narrations in the book are beautiful as well. I don't know if you got a chance yeah, to read them, of. but that, that story is there with the fiddle and every, every image is narrated. It has a timestamp and a location and a little narration, which are my thoughts
0: at the time. Gorgeous. So the flowers, we know. I'm reading numbers like eight hundred thousand people from all across the globe came to Mullingar, yeah. as you know. It was just electric. And I was saying, I've very good friends in in yeah. Mullingar, the the Shaws. And my friend Alex, who came home from London, was like, "There won't even be a couch now. Forget about it. You'll have to sleep in your car." I was like, I'm well, I was to
1: "Come down." It I was, it like, was forget about it. Was it was an amazing spectacle. You yeah. know, it was just it was
0: just something else. I mean, so just tell me about. Uh, it's available to buy now. Um, and it only launched last Friday, correct? When Last Wednesday. Last Wednesday, eight. great. Um, and yeah, I've, I've loved the little story of somebody reaching out to you from Canada. It was your first...
1: Yeah, <laughs> so um, about two weeks ago, we, like it was all hell for leather to get everything done. And, you know, we have, when we had the book uh, finished, we had to concentrate on the launch and then, the, then the website. And uh, there were four of us, uh, Eamon, Eamon Sullivan, Natalie Moriarty in and Kermare, and There were really helpful. And it was a Friday evening, right up until about half nine. And we were all working away, with little changes here and there. Mm-hmm. And then at half nine, I remember we said, right, it's ready to go. So we hit the green light. And literally, I was sitting down with a glass of wine, watching um, your man there in the Late Late Show. And um, uh, uh, I got a message on Facebook and it was a lady in Canada, Miramachi in Canada. <laughs> New, New Brunswick and she was in an awful tizzy she said I can't it's, it's not shipping to Canada and I said don't worry about it I said I'm going to I'm sort of, that for you uh, in brilliant. two minutes and I wouldn't have a clue how to do it. so I just message Natalie and she had it done there and then
0: And it was brilliant So now the book is uh, called Reraw Mullingar a Flakio Chronicle and it's available to buy on e or at local R- bookshops dot .com .com thank you very much uh, or at local bookshops in Mullingar is that correct? Correct. Yeah,
1: it's two two of my favourite bookshops in the country are stocking it: Just Books in Mullingar and Kenny's Bookstore in Galway. Well done. Uh, and I can say they are, they are my favourite at the time because they're the only two that I've reached out to. Good man. So if anybody else out there, any other bookstores w- would like to stock it, just get in touch. with Well done,
0: with me. Noel. Great interview. Thank you so much, Noel McIntyre. We'll thank take you. a break. Thank you. Now, my first guest today is a cognitive scientist. Uh, she did her master's and PhD at UCD, a senior fellow in trustworthy AI at the Mozilla Foundation and is a lecturer at Trinity College. She's been named as one of the 100 most influential persons by the Times in AI 2023 and has been appointed to the UN's new AI advisory board. Good morning, Dr. Abeba Birhani.
3: Good morning, Brendan.
0: Thank you so much. That's quite a list and quite an achievement. Yeah, yeah,
3: I guess, I guess. (laughs) Yeah,
0: congratulations. (laughs) Thank Um, you. So, AI, let's just start at the... I was actually thinking a lot about this and I think we're all thinking about, we're understanding that there's this, there's this cloud of of an unknown force that we're all deeply embedded in and we don't really understand. So let's go right back and just do AI, artificial intelligence for dummies. Just explain it.
3: Yeah, I mean, AI is everywhere. It's it's ubiquitous, you know, all over the news, all over the media, even within within the research space. Uh, so the basic idea of artificial intelligence, at least in its conception back in the 1950s, in the 1960s... Are we going, was, are we going
0: uh, as far back as then? Yeah,
3: y- yeah because there was a, a very precise understanding of what AI was back then. So the idea was to recreate, you know, intelligence it could be problem solving it could be develop you know development it could be various cognitive faculties the idea was to recreate those faculties uh, in machines but you know over the decades that really goal has moved uh, these days we call you know a, a, almost any automation we call it ai uh, but the way uh, you know those kind of intelligence can be recreated in machines uh, you can think of it in subcategories like in computer vision, in natural language processing, in robotics, for example. So in computer vision, for example, the idea is to gather, to map, and to kind of understand the visual world. Okay. And the way you do that, you know, with machines is you collect, you know, thousands, millions, and billions of image data, sometimes video data, and you, 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 you kind of, you develop a, a, a formula, an equation, and you feed all that data into the machine, and then it will be able to kind of learn what the visual world looks like. Okay. And a classic example would be, for example, you know, a face recognition system, for example. Okay. So you will have your formula, you will get thousands and maybe millions and billions of images of faces. You show it, you know, this is a face, this is a face. And by, by the end of the training... When you show the machine an image that it hasn't seen before, then it should be able to tell you, you know, face or not a face. Okay. So that is a classic example of, you know, how the visual world is understood in machines or surrendered, rendered in machines.
0: So, and that's not without its issues. And we'll go, we'll get into that a little later because it's kind of fascinating and, and a bit scary. But in our own lives, in, in domestic lives. One thing that really jumped out for me is, the you know, those automatic vacuum cleaners? Yes. They map your house.
3: They do. They do. (laughs) Even your smart
0: fridge has AI, right? Yeah.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, again, as I said, you know, it's a slippery slope, what we call AI these days. But yeah, yeah, they do have, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, data collecting system, tracking system. So, AI is also very tangled with surveillance. Okay. So AI has become to to, to denote uh, surveillance. You know we are constantly it, you know all those gadgets. You know the the smart fridges, the nice uh, convenient uh, vacuum cleaner, uh, even you know the smart uh, the, the smartwatch on our wrist. It all comes as convenient, yeah, uh, and it does make life easier. But the downside of it is also we are constantly being tracked and monitored and surveilled as well.
0: So I, I actually heard of uh, a report on a crime and somebody had their smartwatch and they could actually tell when the crime happened. And, and so, the, the, so there's, there's plus sides to the evidence that it can provide. But if being tracked all the time, does that concern you?
3: It does. I think it should concern everybody. Really? I mean, yeah, at the very basic level, we are creating a, a society where there is no escape, where there is no space just to be, because you are constantly watched and monitored. Even, you know, the the, the vacuum cleaner itself, even the sanctuary of the home is, you know, is no longer just for your own you know, for your own safety, for you t- to just be—it—it it has become. You know, these machines have in- infiltrated into our daily lives so much that even our home is, you know, constantly uh, watched and monitored. So that—that that should be—that should be a problem.
0: Um, and, and we'll go into the wider problems and the understanding because it's been legal cases and everything about the problems that AI presents, but. Um, f- I'm dying to ask you, and I just thought about this. Are our phones listening to us? You know the way I, I'll say, I'll say, oh, I was looking up runners the other day for a big brand. And next one, an ad appears in my site. Is it true that audio tags exist?
3: It Wet phone. It, it depends on your phone, I guess. But audio
0: tags yeah. exist.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, there's been numerous research that that highlight or that have shown that, uh, you know, the the various, uh, yeah, <laughs> the various systems, even you know the the home assistants, the Alexas, the series, uh, they do uh, uh, they do record and, and listen even even when they're so.
0: Listening. You work uh, on centres that are attempting to ensure safety in a uh, for the future, and we'll come to that as But what should we be alarmed about? Do you think now in the society we're living in right now with AI tracking?
3: So, yeah, it's important to be alarmed about the writing because at the moment when uh, we hear a lot of, we know, a lot of the AI narrative is, uh, you know, uh, it is filled with uh unrealistically overhyped understanding and uh, kind of sci-fi like abstract things that we should worry about. So you hear for it. So there is this understanding that AI is this, you know, uh, sci-fi kind of terminator type of stuff that is going to, you know, kill all humans, or uh, you have this narrative of, you know, long term impacts of AI where people think that you know, eventually we won't be able to control AI and that should be a worry. But all that is really unwarranted. All that is more of a theory, more of, you know, a sci-fi rather than than, uh, the reality. I actually
0: heard, uh, and it was on a a daytime uh, BBC show, and it was uh, uh, somebody interviewing an AI specialist who was being quite sensational, but saying, you know, if you had an AI booking app, and it was trying to figure out to get you a table in a restaurant, in the future it could just go in and remo- physically remove people with drones to clear you a table. That's that's the sci-fi yeah, ridiculousness. That is, yeah, that's yeah.
3: that's outrageous, very unrealistic. Okay. Yeah, but what should be, what we should actually be worried about is, as I hear, you know, the surveillance state, you know, the society, the society we live in, like the apartment complexes we are in, you know, con- more and more cameras being installed, you know, for, for the communities to, to be watched. Uh, so the the surveillance that comes with AI is what should worry us and what, uh, and other things such as, you know, even though AI is portrayed as this magic bullet, as this perfect thing that understands the world, that can figure everything out, that can solve any problems. In reality, most of AI is full of failure. It's full of problems. (laughs) And Really? Yes. Yeah. uh,
0: And explain that to me a bit more. How how is that the case? Yeah.
3: So for example, you know, there is a whole field uh, area uh, called you know uh, adversarial perturbation adversarial attacks where uh, for example for a computer vision system you can train a system to recognize for a, for example a face and you can tweak you can change a tiny pixel of an image, And that vision system could be completely thrown off. So instead of telling you a face is a face, it could tell you like it's a giraffe or it's a bus or something like that. So even tiny changes that is not visible to the human eye can. So this is one example of how these systems are very prone to failure. And how they are very brittle.
0: And so you are behind the MIT. We know the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. MIT. Everybody knows that MIT is most people do anyway. It's it's kind of world leading, thought leading uh, education in America. Uh, you were part to remove the 80 million tiny images uh, back yeah. in, what happened? So in 2020, yeah. what happened?
3: Yeah, so uh, myself and my colleague were working. Uh, so one of the things I do is, you know, audit or kind of investigate and look after the, the data set that is used to train AI systems. So back in 2020, my colleague uh, and myself were auditing uh, a, a data set called uh uh, it's one of the biggest data sets called ImageNet. I mean, one of the best standard, I think gold standard data sets for vision, at least at the moment. Uh, and then we uh, uh, we landed on this uh, 80 million uh, tiny images data set and it was never audited before. And the data set e- has existed for Can over 10 years. Can I ask that, so just, just
0: in terms of uh, understanding? So that data set, it was used as an image recognition Data database.
3: It was used as a training material for computer vision systems and hundreds of academic publications were published based on it. And MIT had assembled, you know, and curated that data set for over ten, fifteen years, I think. So it was it was being used until we went in and investigated it. And what we found was really horrible. We found thousands and thousands and thousands of of images labeled with, you know, the N word, the C word, the W word, words I can't say here. Uh, So the next day after our research came out, yeah, uh, the MIT apologized and and withdrew it. This is the thing, you know. So how did that
0: happen? Because it's unordered, it's unregulated.
3: I mean, most data sets are, so auditing data sets is not a thing. It is becoming a thing now because we really are pushing for it. Uh, But, yeah, we don't pay as much attention to the data set that we are training our AIs with just as much as we pay attention to the, the AI itself.
0: And intrinsically, this leads us, and I'm aware of this for some other work that I've done. Um, there's examples of racism through facial recognition. And is it as simple as the data is stored and uh, compiled by mostly white men in technology? Is it that simple? Uh, is that too simplistic?
3: I wish it was that simple. Okay. Unfortunately, it's it's not that simple. <laughs> okay. No. But the quality of the data, set does definitely contribute in the performance of the AI model. So, again, as I said, uh, you know, AI is not, uh, it's its not a new revelation. We've had a lot of the, you know, the important, uh, you know, theories and formulations since the 50s, 60s, 70s, but what really pushed the AI revolution, what really made AI, you know, an everyday item is the availability of large-scale data sets, thanks to the internet. Okay. So it's only over the past 15, 20 years that AI has become a thing, and that's thanks to the internet that allows you know for for the sourcing for the harvesting of huge billions, sometimes even trillions tokens of data sets to train AI systems. So
0: so let's bring it down to that case in America, Robert Williams in America, who uh, there's been six arrests so far in America, all due to errors in facial recognition. So that's very alarming, isn't it?
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm an academic. I look at the data sets. I examine the models uh, and, you know, my findings often show that Facial recognition systems, in general, they don't perform as well on darker skin-toned, you know, images as to lighter skin-toned images. This has been this has been known for years now. In two thousand and fifteen, uh, Google's photo app labeled, you know, uh, black people as gorilla. That was a big outrage. In two thousand and eighteen, we have a canonical research by Timnit Gabriel and Joy Bolamwini coming out and showing that. Uh, they audited three face recognition algorithms from Amazon, Face++, uh, and IBM. And they found that the performance rate was huge. There is a huge difference. So there was up to 35% error rate for darker skinned women. Whereas for lighter skinned men, the error rate was 0.8. It was uh, 0.08. It was under
0: 1%. So I have to ask, Why? Biases. So
3: partly due to, to due to the dra- training, not everything can boil down to the data set, but partly due to the, the training data set. Uh, again, you know, the training data set, because it comes from the Internet and because the Internet is a really ugly, nasty place that really kind of encodes historical and societal biases. Uh, so when we scoop that data set from the, the web and use it as a training material, we also take you know the 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 problematic historical biases in racism.
0: That's fascinating. Along with it. Now, um, then, there's been uh, issues in relation to welfare assistance. In a, a Dutch scandal broke as well. Tell us about that.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, when we apply these these uh, AI systems. For example, in law enforcement, going back to Robert Williams, you know, these error, uh, error margins or these error rates are not just theoretical. They have a downstream actual impact on real people. So people due to errors are being arrested. Uh, Also for the same for the Dutch welfare system, they uh, used an algorithm to help them assist in identifying fraud and claims from, from welfare claimants. And what they found was, Uh, It was disproportionately punishing people that are at the very margins of society. You know, thousands of people were dying and people were, uh, uh, you know, their, their welfare benefits were was taken off them. And again, they found out uh, the algorithm was uh, uh, grossly uh, incorrect and they discontinued that. Uh, You have the same case in 2020 uh, with in the UK, uh, with COVID, the UK government decided to use an algorithm to allocate grades for A-levels. And they found that, you know, grades were not allocated based on the merit of the student, but rather the air code, the location of the students. So students from the uh, Wales air codes were receiving much higher grades and students from the uh, poorer areas were were punished for it. Again, this was discontinued.
0: Okay, so this is terrifying. Let's be honest. Yeah. Okay. So we can face recognition get you arrested uh, using algorithms to determine whether or not you're entitled to welfare. Could have there the, the was fa- people where it said bills of over hundred thousand euro. So it can get things wrong. But luckily, you've it been often
3: gets things often, wrong.
0: Often, <laughs> okay. Yes. But you've been named as one of uh, the hundred most influential persons in AI in 2023 by Time Magazine. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you and so that's much. And obviously, with the view to trying to fix some of these issues that might be presenting themselves. Is that true?
3: Yeah, my contribution, I don't build AI. My contribution really is critical. Uh, I point out, you know, the these error rates. I point out, the, the you know, the failures in functioning. I point out the bias in, in the data set. I, I point out how, you know, all these really stagnant, uh, negative stereotypes get encoded and exacerbate, get exacerbated in data sets. That's my contribution. And I guess, you know, uh, Time uh, naming me as uh, one of the persons there uh, shows that this kind of critical work is also valued as well as, uh, you know, building models.
0: So there are and there are other po- positives associated with AI, healthcare, climate. There are other areas that it is working in, would you say? Is that fair to say? Uh,
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean yeah I will take any you know AI is working with uh, in in any domain with a big bucket of salt.
0: Okay so you're you're uh, on the United Nations as an advisory board on this. I have to, should we be very afraid?
3: No, 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 no. we should be glad. Okay, good, (laughs) We should be glad, yeah. The UN assembled this body uh, to kind of help draft regulatory directions. So we are working on, you know, outlining the, the harms, the risks, and the kind of regulatory... Uh, uh development that needs to be uh that needs to be looked after. That needs to be And about. how
0: did you get interested in it? Now you're you're an adjunct lecturer in Trinity and uh how did you yeah. get involved in, yeah. s- in in this area? Uh
3: so I I'm a I'm a cognitive scientist by training. Love uh, that. So Fascinated <laughs> by that word.
0: I love
1: it. Yeah. So I'm
3: not really I'm not a computer scientist. So oh. yeah and usually it's computer scientists that do this kind of work. Uh, uh but i was uh, as i was doing my phd at ucd uh co- the cognitive science program is run by the school of computer science so i was in a lab full of you know software developers machine learners and i'm always curious you know uh, nosy uh, around you know w- what data are you using where where does it come from you know how did you taxonomize it and so on so that curiosity led me to look at more and more into data sets and to critically examine, you know, these kind of AI models that we are building that are supposed to capture, you know, human behaviour and mm-hmm. human action. Uh, so, so, yeah, my curiosity arrows. Uh, and you, you
0: have a, a, a brilliant uh, knowledge of, clearly of it. But as a, as a human on the earth, is there any one tip you'd give to me to say how to sort of be conscious of AI and how to use it in your life in a positive way? Is there any one thing you could say I can do?
3: Yeah, so there is a lot of, you know, inflated claims about AI. There is so much overhype. So question everything, anything you are hearing. If it sounds too good to to, to be true, it probably is true. Uh and yeah, in terms of surveillance, it doesn't it's not inevitable. We don't have to be sub, we don't have to subject ourselves to it. We can resist it. So we can avoid uh, we can use various techniques to, to avoid surveillance and we can also actively resist it.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Abeba Barhani, I've really loved it and we'll chat again, I'm sure. Thank it's you so such much. such a pleasure. Thank, Thank you
3: for having me. Thank
0: you. Let's take a break. Recently, the Dublin streets were lined with people queuing, queuing as the Kardashians uh, range of shapewear. Skims are called, landed in brown thomas. Skims is the name of the brand. Shapewear doesn't, uh, obviously share as many eras as other fashions and uh, it was probably down to Spanx being the only name on the block for a long time. Well, Vacious, like vivacious without the V is Ireland's answer to the new generation of shapewear and in our Limerick studio are two sisters responsible for it. Mary and Sinead, good morning.
4: Good morning. Hi Brendan, morning, how are you? Morning, how are
0: you? I know you were supposed to get to Dublin but you have a couple of sick young ones, is that right?
4: I know, it's the time of year now everyone is getting listen, it but sorry we don't get to see your lovely face in person. Uh, but listen,
0: we're, we were chatting online anyway last yes, night, all excited to see exactly, each Exactly,
4: we're delighted to be here.
0: So, uh, this is a very interesting business story, it's also a very interesting social story around a body shape, um, mm-hmm. but also just go back a step before we start talking about shapewear. Give us an idea of who you are, Sinead, because I followed you anyway on Instagram. It's called Sinead's Curvy Style. So That's tell right. me about your journey into fashion.
4: Thank you. So, yeah, Sinead's Curvy Style was born in around uh, 2013. Um, I started, I suppose, blogging, um, was the word back then. Yeah. Um, when it was really only the likes of Suzanne Jackson, like the queen, you know, herself yeah. was probably the main person doing it back then. So, there wasn't many doing it and I, I always found that I had a love for fashion and with my, my I suppose my niche was that I was on the curvy side, I was a size 20, I still am and everybody used to always say oh my god wow how do you always look so good almost like it was a mystery, you know mm-hmm. you can be curvy and still look good and it was like you should start a page and show other women that might struggle with their shape and show them how they can look good so I was like okay, um, I'll take uh, my hand at trying um, to do a blog and that's where I um, started at Sinead's Curvy Style and from there I would just it was just pictures back then you know I'd just share pictures and write a little about how I'd put an outfit together and then it was really just my friends and family I'd be like ma'am will you throw me a few likes there on Facebook you know it was really just that That's, at the a, that's start- a good
0: Christmas card throw me a few likes like, I know <laughs>
4: yeah, exactly uh, and then it just took legs after that I think one day I put on a jumpsuit in New Look and it just I suppose back then the I don't know was it viral but it got like a load of likes and then it just kind of grew legs after that and then really i haven't looked back since so
0: in a way i suppose given location and ireland and at the time it was you'd say you'd say it was almost impossible to see women like you dressing Absolutely, and being confident.
4: Yes, uh, I was a curvy model at the time and um, I suppose any time I'd meet somebody I almost had to explain to them I couldn't just say I'm a model they'd say oh I'd say well I'm a curvy model you know because really um, even back then it was kind of more like you know you'd see your size 8s, 10s on the catwalk so it was kind of new to them (laughs) so now it's very different obviously it's amazing now things have changed so much since then but uh, Hats um, off
0: to you you've been part of that change and you should be you should uh, take take credit for that absolutely but let's not just go, go lost over your word of mouth and your modelling you've got about 120,000 followers now
4: Yes Yes Uh, Yeah it grew it grew and grew over time and a lot of those followers have been with me since day one since the Snapchat days you know Um, so it's amazing just to see how far it's come And
0: uh, you know I'm a fashion designer and Mm -hmm. I've worked in fashion television for years and years and years and we, we would always be very conscious and aware of this message and so we had backup and we had insight where did your confidence come from?
4: I always say to people like, you know confidence it, you're not born with confidence it's something that grows within you and as somebody that had to obviously just start modelling um, with my own I suppose my own background into it was just having a love for fashion but I was definitely one of those girls I remember going shopping with my mum and I'd come out of like say River Island in tears because mm. I'd say oh god nothing would fit me you know and i just get so frustrated and she used to be so upset for me and then um, I suppose I just found a way to kind of, it made me work harder for fashion it made me kind of have to to play around with fashion more because so it wasn't an easy, as easy for me as it was for my friends to go in and get a dress. I always had to kind of, um, you know, change things around a bit to make, make myself feel good and look good in clothes. And with that then over time, I guess I just said, I, I want to help other women... Um, feel this way because I know I feel good now and uh, and mm-hmm. after that then it just a confidence just I suppose grew inside me and then I kind of just kept going from there
0: And the modelling started you won a national competition to find yeah. and the, the, the new I mean I'm not even entirely sure I like using the word curvy anymore but however yeah. to find a new model for the face of tempted so tell you what, what year was that?
4: That's right oh my god that was about 2014 about that. 15 that was the, <laughs> That's Mary I, was I forgot about up, that. Mary. Hi Mary sorry we you know you're
2: there
4: <laughs> <laughs> that, that definitely put me on the map in Dublin and it's an amazing shop in Dublin Rosemary Kearns is her name and um, she's still there now looking after women up to size 30 and from there um, I, I, that was when I kind of really got a name for myself I think and um, just started to kind of get I, my name out there more.
0: And I'm interested about when you actually started modelling you, you, you're, you're quoted here as saying you would turn up and they'd say well you have a lovely face haven't you or yeah, and they wouldn't they, have clothes. i get
4: that a lot oh. they'd say uh, you know I'd say to people I was a model say oh she's a lovely face I'd be like what about the rest of me <laughs> <laughs> you know but when I used to do fashion shows yes so I would do fashion shows and I'd be raring to go and I'd have all the confidence in the world and I found myself um, left in the back of the room when all the other models were going out because a lot of the shops unfortunately would say sorry we don't have your size and I was like what the hell did you bring me here for I mean they're the ones losing out you know because I was ready to go out there and, and show everyone and, and sell. sell you yeah, know
2: yeah.
4: Um, and left, and I was left there and that's when I just said you know what um, I'm going to start my own range <laughs> and brilliant. go from there brilliant
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> so and just, I, I know you, you. Is your mother terribly supportive? Do you have a lot of support? In your yes. Like, so if you go off when you're young and you turn up and you're left, like, you know. The, the the fledgling swan at the side of the runway and everybody else has gone off sailing. How do you find that grit in yourself to to keep going? You know, it's very impressive.
4: If anything, it just pushed me to go more because did it? you know, absolutely. Because I I wasn't hurt by it. Like I mean, years ago when I was when I was younger, I was upset. But I was a different person going into these fashion shows. I knew that I was curvy and I knew I had something to offer. And I knew that it was just as I said, those shops were missing out. Um, so you know, I there was a few shops then that would come and they did. They were able to dress me, and the, you could see people's reaction <laughs> when I would come out you know they just were so excited to see your everyday size you know uh, and I hate the term real women I believe we're all real women of all shapes and sizes but I mean they would love to see a size 20 come out because you're just representing um, so many women Yeah. Um, so it was great to, you're that. amazing it's amazing <laughs> and
0: so um Another element to this is is your is your business story. And, um, so you grow your audience. You know, there's so many negatives we hear about social media, but there is the upside of connecting with an, with an audience and connecting with customers and connecting with people like minded people, which is what you've achieved through your Instagram. So then you decide to uh, launch your own shapewear brand.
4: Yes, and that's when Vacious was born. Um, I I suppose I was an influencer for the last 10 years and it just seemed like, you know, it was the next step for me. Um, You know, I had been kind of um, plugging everybody else's brands and um, supporting all of their fashion brands and and I loved it and it was great to build a name for myself with so many brands. But I mean, the obvious choice for me was to kind of bring out my own product and it was always going to be shapewear, always.
0: Now, uh, for anybody who doesn't know what shapewear is, I'm going to let you explain explain it.
4: Yes. (laughs) Uh, So shapewear is basically like a second skin. You want it to just accentuate your curves. You know obviously it kind of has this perception of oh it's going to make me look two sizes smaller. I mean if you go down a size and you don't want to breathe that's possible but shapewear is all about um, kind of making you feel good, supporting you, just giving you that confidence. It's like the foundation to your wardrobe and it's it's what begins your whole outfit, what ties it all in together. So if you've got your favourite dress you pop on your shapewear first, you know you're just going to feel that little bit more secure, and it just makes you feel good. Um, for your occasions, for uh, you know, we have our everyday shaper now as well. There's just so many different types and styles um, that you can choose from that. It's Brilliant. just a second
0: skip. Uh, Mary, I'm going to bring you in the two seconds. I just wanted to back you up there and mm-hmm. say, so when I'm styling women for a, a big occasion, a lot of fabrics we would use are a bit clingy or a bit, you know, they're just in terms of the yeah. actual fabric. So shapewear can actually just leave that, let the fabric skim gently so it doesn't cling or get stuck or exactly. feel uncomfortable. Exactly. Mary, you are, uh, are you the first business owners in your family and you're, the, you're Sinead's sister and business partner?
5: Yeah, so I'm Sinead's older sister. Great. Um but my dad would have been a business owner. Okay. Um he had a he had a pub. So I've always worked with him. I've always kind of I was the most hands on I think of the three of us. I just my drank dad. in the pub
0: Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> so Mary does the Mary does the heavy lifting. Go on there, exactly Mary, yeah. <laughs>
5: So yeah, um so we learned from him Sinead definitely has my dad's um attitude confidence and risk taking mm-hmm. so she's i mean you need to be a risk taker in if you want to do well in business where it's i kind of i I think hold her back a little when she needs to be held back and and I'm there to push her when she when she needs to be pushed um so I think we we um we work well together we we both bring very 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 different qualities to to the business which I think is why it's it's doing yeah. as well as it is so far.
0: So you grew up watching your father run a business, yeah. count the money, bank the money, get to keep the customers happy, all yeah. the things that you need, you know, pay your tax, all those those things you mm-hmm. had to do. So w- was was he a big inspiration?
5: Oh, massive. Massively. And he had that gift to the gab. You know, he was good at running a business, but that quality that Sinead has, that, you know, she said there, you can't, you're not born with confidence, you learn it. But there's something that she has that my dad also had. And you, you don't learn that. It's just this, it's a quality to connect with people and to just believe in themselves and my dad I definitely saw that in himself and Sinead definitely has oh, has that as well yeah. so yeah it's nice to see that come through her too He
4: kissed the blarney stone I think definitely <laughs> I, I, You weren't far behind him now in fairness
0: yeah, that's for sure So uh, and for you uh, Sinead was your your dad a big influence in terms of running the business and, and, and having the confidence to do it?
4: absolutely. I mean, um, he left the bar, he retired and then he was a man that basically couldn't stop working so then he went back into it and this was when I first started marketing because I was at the age where I could help him because he founded this, this was a new bar that he was in it was kind of struggling and I said, okay, but why don't we do this? And I remember going on Facebook and hab- uh, creating an event and that was my very first time we filled the bar, didn't we Mary? It was like a Halloween party right. he couldn't believe it you know, so that was where um, I started working alongside him but again I mean, watching him down through the years and he just never stopped. He was just a workaholic. But I mean, he, he had fun as well, believe me. But he loved to work. He was
5: a hard worker. Man will be listening to this now. She worked in there as well. Yeah. On a Sunday <laughs> night only, <laughs> but she did do her bit.
0: And uh, your father, uh, did he get to see the business start? Or oh, God, yeah. And was so, he proud of you? Uh,
4: yeah, he passed away seven months ago. Oh, but I'm but sorry. That's very you, recent. Thank you so much. Um, but he, yes, he, he has seen me thrive and struggle and pick myself back up. But he was my number number one supporter um, you know I've been a singer as well for a long time and he'd always be so proud of that um, but I mean the shapewear um, was a huge thing he'd drive a taxi and anytime someone would get into the taxi he'd say oh my daughter now has a shapewear business and you'd have to try it or, or my daughter was singing here and you know he was so proud of us all so, so he would
0: always be your, your biggest
4: promoter absolutely oh, that's yeah.
0: amazing that's amazing okay so how did you actually go about starting your own business? I'm always fascinated by this.
4: Well, I suppose um, initially it was down to starting my own shows throughout the country. So as an influencer, I had a big following. And again, I was probably one of the first ones with like, say, Pippa and Suzanne that did um, these uh, road shows, I suppose you could call them. But for me, we started in Limerick and my very first show was in Dolan's Warehouse. And it took me about three weeks to sell about no, 20 well, tickets. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember remember I struggled to sell the tickets they're only like 20 euros because nobody had done one of these and I I didn't even know myself (laughs) what I was at to be honest but you know what we had two solid nights of like fashion and makeup and just little demos and things like that I think I sang it was just a mix of everything that I love Mm -hmm. and we had a lovely crowd that came and then I said okay I think I'm on to something here with this so then we progressed and we went across the road to the Clayton and we had about 150 and then from there we went out to Bunratty Castle Hotel and then it was 300 women and three. Nights in a row. I think one Christmas Mary, we did, we did three six, like back. a thousand women in one weekend. Um, so those shows were a huge stepping stone into how, because I'm self funded completely with Vicious and they were a huge stepping stone into being able to get everything.
5: I think set one in of place. the earliest things I noticed with Sinead to, to know that the workshops were going to take off was with Sinead's engagement on social media, she'd have so many followers, but they all watched her and tuned in daily. You know that you can get likes and this and then people disappear. Yeah, it's Whereas, all about their engagement yeah, so isn't there. Because there was an awful lot of engagement there. And the interest was just there from the beginning. And yeah. I think I came on board very early on because they just grew so quickly. And yeah. Sinead was great to go on the stage to draw you know, she she had that star quality but there's so much involved in putting a show like that together Oh of course
0: and listen the, a big motivation for uh, us talking to you guys is well apart from I, I actually know your world well is yes. um, is there's so few brands in this space and an Irish brand like vacious doing that competing with mm. the Kardashian band we're really proud of you guys Thank so, you yeah, <laughs> No it's really great and, and I really wanted to hear your story so what's the future?
4: Well, we have big plans. Um I just, bet you do. We have big, big plans. <laughs> I <I've laughs> um, no doubt, we're, <laughs> to, we're definitely hoping to do um, some pop-up shops. I think a lot of people want to physically touch, feel, try on Um, so that's definitely in the talks Um, where I don't know yet but there's we'd like to kind of um, do as many of those as we can next year and then also we're hoping to break into the UK and we've been working with a lot of influencers over there and I think that would be um, the next um, big step for us as well Um, but I mean as it stands we're just like we went from zero to a hundred very quickly so now we just have to keep that up which is hard you know you're constantly trying to reinvent yourself. We just did our Christmas campaign we launched our gift boxes yesterday sold out in an hour <laughs> it was Listen. absolutely mad um, so people just love the brand they trust the brand um, I think the reason we're so successful you know um, any influencer I suppose can try any, they're handed anything at anything the first time but you have to have that return customer yeah. and we have that and it's just going from strength to strength uh, Question a, a text in here for you Mary question for the sister I love how people
0: yeah. <laughs> how do they think Shapewear works when we want to promote body confidence in young girls particularly how, sorry? So the the texter says, how do they think shapewear works when we want to promote body confidence in young girls, particularly? So y- y- the oh, question yeah. that you face, I'm sure, all the time is that if you're putting people into shapewear, is it questioning body confidence? Well,
5: do you know what? It's funny. My two girls um, have seen Sinead from day one and they see that Sinead is confident Regardless of what she's wearing, so that confidence is there. So it doesn't it doesn't come into the shape. And I know myself; I'll wear an awful lot of the everyday stuff that Sinead does. So the everyday vest is a piece that I'd wear regularly because um, it gives you a lovely smoothing effect, and it's a lovely it's a lovely piece to wear. And it's not all about sucking it sucking in the tummy and you know hiding what you have. It can help you actually to embrace and to show off what you have, and my two girls see that all the time. You know, they'll see me train, but they'll also see me work beside Sinead and promote what it is that she's created. And I think we've we've combined those two things very very well actually.
0: Sinead, you you've faced this question a lot as you know as the inventor of this yes. at the start of the conversation. I'm going to give you the last word on
6: that.
4: Well, I think I mean for me, it's you can think of this how you want to. I mean, at the end of the day, shaper does serve its purpose, and it is to kind of you know accentuate your shape, but that a very important word here it's all about accentuating what you have that's already good you know I mean for, like I know all these women that come to me they say they've had stuff in their wardrobe that they haven't worn for years because they didn't have the confidence to wear it so you know regardless of it like saying okay it makes you look slimmer it just makes you feel better and it gives you that like little bit of an extra pep in your step and for me that's a win-win because when I see these women coming to me and how happy they are I know I've done a, a good job you mm. know so I Listen, definitely think it's it's just bringing that confidence into people's lives
0: It's a brilliant Irish business story and you are both incredible and I wish Thank you the best you. of luck So it's Vacious.ie or Vacious on Instagram and you are give us your handle again for Instagram Sinead's Curvy Style Sinead's Curvy Style and uh, you'll <laughs> have to beat the 120,000 followers on yes. to get noticed but do don't be afraid to DM Listen, wish you the best of luck thanks thanks and, so Brandon, much. and thanks hope Brandon. Christmas goes really well for you and see you both soon Thank you thanks so much, so so much. much. Let's much. Take, take a quick break Now, my guest is a documentary filmmaker that people would describe has a distinctive charm and style to his work. You might remember His and Hers was the name. It featured a cast of 70 people talking about love and relationships. More recently, Making the Grade told stories of piano players all over Ireland. And he describes his latest offering, So This Is Christmas, as by far the most complicated of his documentary films so far. And he joins me this morning. Ken Wardrop, good to meet you.
7: Good to meet you. I'm delighted we're talking about Christmas. Yeah, we're not allowed, but we are. <laughs> but we're not, but
0: we are. Well, I—I I know
7: it's a no-no, but no, sure. it's not
0: really because actually, what we did was two kind of Christmas warm-up stories, getting us gently into it, and and this for me, uh, I watched it. I you sent me a screener last night, and it's in cinemas I think tomorrow. Yeah, it is, yeah, yeah. November seventeenth, nationwide. nationwide. Yeah, nationwide cinemas tomorrow. Uh, I can't. Tell you how important it is to go and see this film. I have to say, from an Irish perspective, from a Christmas perspective, from a global perspective, from so ma- from a human perspective. So my partner walked into the bedroom at one point in the film. I'm not going to tell at which point because there's a couple of spoilers that I won't give. I was sobbing. You, you made me cry in a beautiful way because then at the end I felt really uplifted as well. So why did you decide to make like your 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 past is so checkered in what you, <laughs> you choose to make uh, documentary films about? Like you're really amazing. Like I watched. Uh, Undressing Mother, brilliant, genius. You get your mother naked. I mean, it's just amazing film, right? What did you, what was it about Christmas that drew you to this?
7: Right, well, okay, Brandon, you're going to make me cry on this journey because I didn't realise I was going to talk about my mum. Just do my job, Ken, just do (laughs) my job. (laughs) Good man. Well, look, I have to say uh, the idea was, uh, I've had it a long time, to be honest, because uh, my gran passed away on Christmas Day when I was 12 years of age. And I think that affected our Christmases for quite some time oh, after. Yeah, of course. So mum would always begin the kind of Christmas season with a dread because it was a lot about her memories and oh, she was God. very close to her mum. Yeah. So uh, needless to say that, you know, the empty chair at the Christmas table was just uh, a reminder of, you know, the realities of life and the circle of life of course and uh, so it was a time of memory for us. So I, I think when you're looking around as a filmmaker, like I have so many ideas that come and go in my head but Christmas sort of has always stayed with me and little things have come back into play now obviously we're all very familiar about the commercialization of Christmas and how we've lost that battle there's no point even thinking we can try to tackle that one but I know a friend of mine who lives in Scandinavia who's you know a well-to-do person has everything she needs and i Four kids, and she knits her presents for the kids every in the lead up to Christmas. Poor kids, yes, or poor kids. Oh, I know exactly. <laughs> well, you see that's the problem. Well, another jumper, expe- woo! yeah. But their expectations are that's what they're getting. Oh, so cute. they see mom knitting from early October at the TV or whatever, and it's kind of a beautiful thing to know that she's invested all this time in this little m- moment and gift. Now I'm sure she get a, they get a few. it's funny you say about.
0: that. My aunt all our lives knit us a Christmas jumper which were really heavy and itchy Aaron jumpers which I now look back and
7: they're the only present I remember. For this my is is exactly, you know? that's what it is. Yeah. You know, I never remember any of the presents but what I do recall is going down on Christmas morning and the fire in the good room was lit and that joy of being in your PJs and standing up I enjoyed it so much the one year my pyjama bottom took on fire of course <laughs> which was also uh, you know so uh, those are the things that we all remember of course and then uh, you know Christmas is the perfect storm let's face it if you've got problems and you have to face them down as well as look at all the joy that's on the you know TV and the I want because actually Christmas
0: yeah. is I like I think it's like a mirror. You have to look at your life and yourself and your connections. But take me back to twelve year old you and that what what was like dealing with. I mean, and how did you, your family cope with Christmas after your grandmother was gone? Obviously, your mother was very close to her. It must have been really horribly hard.
7: Well, you know, it's a long time ago, so my memories aren't very fresh. But I'll tell you one thing: I lost my mum this year, and oh, it's sorry. Go- yeah, no, you're okay. But it's brought the reality of this Christmas around to me that how am I going to face into Christmas? You battle with grief, you know. Uh, you know, comes and ebbs and flows. We all know waves hit you and so forth. But in Christmas, it's it's going to hit in. It's going to kick in. You know, Christmas was about she mammy's made Christmas, let's face it. So when your mammy's gone, there's something it will always be different at Christmas time. So it's no wonder that my mum, when she lost her her dear mum, that it was going to affect her. And then of course because she's the centre of all our lives and made our Christmases, you know, we're farmers. Dad, you know, in the you know, mum was the centre of everything and prepared her. So obviously if that was done with a tear in her eye, and when I say tears, there were more than, you know, uh, it just would leave a little bit of a darkness, a dark cloud. Now yeah. that lifted in time of course but at 12 and my brother would have been 9 you know that's quite you know an age that you do recall and you know it has
0: so so, uh, and obviously listeners haven't haven't seen the film but I'm really struck at the poignancy of
7: your Christmas having watched your film and you worked last Christmas Uh, Yeah, I was with you were filming all last Christmas it was actually a really interesting scenario because you're never really faced uh, with documentary filmmaking well I haven't anyway you're not uh, with a deadline. And so we had to shoot it all uh in the lead up to Christmas. And we were with one of our families obviously on Christmas Eve. We couldn't be with everybody. And that was really poignant to leave that family and say goodbye and know that we were going home to our families and our so, you know, we all have struggles, less faith, but this particular family had, you know, it was a momentous kind of moment in their lives uh, the following day. So uh yeah, look, what a privilege it was to be with people and share in so, so- with of their stories. It,
0: it, it, like it's not to be skimmed over your connection to Christmas. And, your oh, yeah. and My own mother now is in a nursing home this Christmas and we are trying to navigate that we don't know what to do. We're all killing each other. Do, what, do we go in there? Do we take you? Like, so
7: oh, I it, share. That, sorry, it, my mum was in a nursing home. Yeah, it's very so, difficult, right? Yeah. And you I love help. the
0: honesty of this film that Christmas is not perfect for everyone. So the story follows five, I suppose, Units could be a solo yeah. family so tell me about uh, the, the the story
7: well look I won't tell you much about I won't go into individuals or whatever but it is about the lead up to Christmas and the struggles that people face and these are anything from you know struggles financial woes uh, you know tackling grief loneliness is such a big thing <gasps> at so Christmas well yeah so you have to so we found characters from all over the place and you know we just told their stories now I have to say we're only with people for 10 minutes it's only a snapshot of their Lives. These are multi- multi-dimensional people. We just pop in to their worlds at Christmas to see how they're feeling. Yeah, and we all understand that that's just a little. It's a creative documentary, you know. I had to uh, create the narrative, so I uh, follow them in the lead up to Christmas and across those uh, moments that we all know when you put up the Christmas tree you go out and you buy a present there are key Genius. moments across it you order your turkey you know and I have to say we're talking about all the uh, you know sadness in the film but it's uh, peppered with lots oh, of humour Oh it's loads of funny
0: so uh, yes. is it Annette? fell I, I yes. a love with her she's so
7: funny She is a glorious character Isn't what she? a gem we were so fortunate to find Annette because you know she unfortunately when I when I think we the day we met her or um, we she reached out to us. She hadn't met a human being in three or four weeks. She couldn't get into town because she doesn't have a vehicle or anything. So she's really stranded. She uses online shopping. You know, thank goodness she's able to manoeuvre her way around the internet and stuff. So, uh, but she's had, you know, a, a hard life, she talked, in our conversation, she always talked BC and I was like, what the hell's BC in it? And she said, before COVID. Ah. And her life was so completely different before COVID. And I think it's sort of interesting if I'd done this film before COVID, I wonder, would it have been as, sort of, I don't know, there was an air it's felt different out there I don't know why and I think we all talk about it I think our mental health struggles in particular have escalated since that period so anyway poor Annette has had um, you know a litany of problems since uh, COVID and it really has restricted her and that means she has become uh, reclusive you know but so we drop into her life, and we just—she is such a, a deep thinker, and funny. so funny. And I mean, she is—I suppose she'd forgive me for she—I hope she'll forgive me for saying this—but she's the Grinch in the <laughs> in the cast, so to speak. But she's but honest. She's honest, I love and she—you know—and she's got such great attitudes to to life as well. And I think when you talk about this film, what does uh, ultimately come through is resilience, yes, and hope. Yeah, yeah.
0: And, and and just to reassure people, it's really worth the watch because there's a lot of joy and hope and positivity out of trauma and difficulty. People just get on and, and in a beautiful way. So Annette, Annette really shone to me. So I hope she's listening because I love you, Annette. You're amazing. <laughs> um, and even just things like the only person she sees is the grocery delivery man. Oh, those people are amazing as well. To, they're frontline workers, so fair play. But it, I think... The young families will really stand out as well to people. Like everybody everybody is, Im- is incredible, their stories. But uh, Roxy's family, mm,
7: yes. I, I mean, you you can tell us a little bit about them. Well, you know, when you go out uh, on a journey like this, you have opportunities to meet different people. And I had the pleasure of meeting Jason in uh, his home in Abbey Leaks for the first time. And I don't think I've ever sort of felt in the presence of an angel before. I'll get emotional here because Jason is such a good man. wonderful, good man. Mm. And himself and Roxy obviously had the most beautiful relationship. I can only imagine what love shone out of that house. So I just, it was, we clicked straight away. And unfortunately he had seen... uh, cocoons a project that I'd made for RG back in the day and uh, he and Roxy had shared that experience so I think there was something that connected us or some sort of serendipity about that moment because he felt comfortable enough to talk to me and we shared and we were with uh, Anne-Marie fellow colleague and we just cried around that kitchen table and obviously it just felt right for for Jason to be part of the project. So Jason lost his dear wife Roxy to cervical cancer the uh, February before so this was going to be uh, his and his boys. They've got two boys their first Christmas together. So it was incredibly raw, incredibly uh, you know it was such a honour to be present with them and hopefully I know they're so proud of the film and their involvement and uh, I hope there was some cathartic experience from it Um, but as I say you know as a filmmaker you know every so often you get these opportunities in life and you began this conversation by saying this was complicated it really was an emotional journey for me to go on and uh, going home on Christmas day I was so grateful for what I had on my own table and the people around me and, um, and as Jason says in the film it's the greatest gift we have is time and I felt so blessed to have that time with my mum, for example, you know, like you, we had to consider what to do. We, I would have spent the Christmas morning with her, got the hugs, the kisses, love. And that was what Christmas was about. It didn't matter the present I gave. She was never going to use, she was going to go up on the shelf or something, you know. Yeah. But it was that cuddle to say I time. love you dearly and, you know, and... Uh, he says yes, that beautifully at the he end, does. you
0: know, the only thing we really matter, the only thing that matters... Is, is you give each other time, your time, and if he'd have known how little time he had, but with her, with her, but he is so open, uh, and and he keeps reminding us that he's doing it for her memory, for his boys who are only young boys, like seven and eleven, I think, aren't they, and they they're yeah. eight and twelve, and they're so strong. The little boys are so gorgeous. It's it's so powerful. And and what it well, the message I have to say that I get from it is, it, she would really love it. You know, oh, I that's think, lovely to hear, yeah, Brennan, because really yeah. I
7: feel a responsibility, yeah. Yeah, obviously, to Roxy's memory, as with Jason, yeah. but I think from the reaction, we had the honour of a, a premiere there down in Cork at the Cork Film Festival, and it was such... such Warmth and love in the room afterwards it was palpable and that was lovely to see and I do hope Irish audiences go out to see it like you know I don't want to but it's like it is an important film because there it, it, is a message deep down into it why you know It really is important I really
0: I really believe people have to see this film H- Who's the older man who lives alone he's the cutest person he works for the Shane kind of, Shane yeah. Shane Shane Oh
7: my goodness the day I met we were talking about the first day because people have an impact on the minute to meet them. But the first day I met Shane, I was like, I don't think I've ever been in the presence of a more famous person because literally walking down the road, <laughs> the horns were beeped and we didn't have a camera or anything. No one would have known who I was. But this man knows everybody in his community. Everybody knows Shane. He is just a happy-go-lucky, smiley character and you know, the kindest soul. Yeah. Like again, I don't think it's probably, as this is only a snapshot in people's lives. There's so many More dimensions to, but with Chain, he was. As a, you know Christmas was complicated because he'd lost his man Dan you know he's a big kid and everybody knows that because he's just but he's such a joy in a heart and we've so much to learn from someone like Shane who's got so little but has so much at the same time you know in life and it, it just he just oozes uh, charisma and he screen. lives
0: alone with his little dog yes and he puts this Santa sign out for the dog and it's just the cutest thing you might get a doggy treat if you're
7: lucky but he's ha- he's happy he's a happy man he's so happy yeah in his, and he goes about his business he's he's just thicken over, you know. Uh, But I suppose, again, for someone like Shane, Christmas is a reminder because he sees the fancy Christmas trees going up across the town. He walks everywhere, so he sees everything. And he sees the families all curled up on the sofa and something, and he's going home to an empty house. So I'm sure he's having those feelings. You know, and again, going back to the genesis of this film, you know, I have a family member who put herself under so much pressure coming up to Christmas with her two kids and single mom really tries hard and wants to give everything to her kids that she adores and yet I am here a gay man without kids and I'm looking at her going you don't realise you've won, you've the won. Cris- you know you, you you've have got it. the boys with you on the sofa they won't remember the presents again yeah, yeah. they'll remember
0: the cuddles they get with you and actually in the film the young mum with the, the three kids oh god she's just amazing and th- she 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 complains about her financial situation obviously it's tricky but she does a disco with the kids and they absolutely love it there's just this magic moment that you just caught and their kids just dancing around the living room and just have and they remembered it and they talk about it it's wonderful it's really magical
7: that's it yeah. who doesn't remember dancing around the kitchen with their mammies yeah. like when the song this is a memory that it's sprung out so when Loretta said that's what they do a tinsel dance <laughs> every Christmas they call it their tinsel dance and it has to be to Joe Dolan you know and I was like oh could we not choose a Christmas song no no the kids wouldn't understand the tinsel dance is to Joe Dolan brilliant so you know and that's what they will make <laughs> my goodness they will remember that in their 40s yeah, they yeah. did the, the tinsel dance what a great idea just to have this moment
0: I, I don't think I've ever seen a version, an honest, open, real, real version of Christmas that you've told um, that I re- I personally really relate to. I find if someone says Christmas is for kids, that beautiful woman says Christmas is for children, and I've always sort of stood by that as well, and I, I kind of stand by that, you know, because it's certainly not for me to go to mass anymore. I don't. I mean, I'd go if mam d- begged me to go, and I, of course I would be respectful. Um, but you tell a story that actually Christmas can show a mirror back on our lives that can be kind of difficult to look at would you agree
7: yeah yeah, that's a fair point I think it is it will be a difficult watch for some people because it does um, it raises issues yeah. that are familiar to all of us because we all have our struggles <clears throat> And at Christmas maybe we try to hide them but obviously they're always underneath the surface and they will you know, they do come up to the surface and I think you're right, there is a mirror there but it is sometimes really important for us to see that, to acknowledge it, to, there is no shame in that. There's also strength in numbers, right? right? Yes. To to understand that there
0: are other people who are lonely there are other people who eat Christmas on their own I I had a Christmas day I must tell you and I really thought, I'd love to have captured it Dad had just died, Mom was at home I had gone for dinner and I live a few minutes away and I really want to go to my own bed The Jack Russell climbed up on me and puked in my hair <laughs> and I was like happy Christmas Brendan <laughs> this, is, this is how it goes someone put a mirror on them. so it's not great for everybody and I think you, you would just acknowledge that and it's just to even say it's a difficult time for people and it's okay to say that
7: now it is, especially this in uh, November, mid-November. We can prepare ourselves for the worst, <laughs> yeah. can You know, yeah. and we got so blessed, didn't we, with the weather in the film. We have a beautiful scene oh, yeah. with the snow, and and you know, I have to acknowledge because we're talking about, but we had the wonderful Emer Noon who composed the music. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, we were very fortunate, and Narin van mail did the photography. So it is it for me. It's uh, it's uh, the next step in my filmmaking career. If oh, you know, it's I, an I,
0: exceptional I, piece of film work. Oh, it's exce- it's it's actually. It's it's an, it's a genre defining, and for me, it's like what is it? It's like I, epic kitchen sink. It's like you know, it's like it's, what when is when is a sequel? You know, it's just a, it's a it's a proper. It needs to be seen in the cinema. I agree with you 100%. That's, it's a beautiful, big view. Um, and it's a shared experience. Yes. And cinema
7: should be a shared experience because you just said that mirror. When we go out of the cinemas and we've only had two public screenings, but it's the conversations in the foyer afterwards about people talking about what they related to, which will be very different for each character, you know? So I think that there is cinema at its best, you know, where it is a shared Beat. Lovely text here. Brendan, thank you so much for covering the Christmas documentary story It
0: it's called. So this is Christmas. Uh, my mum has Alzheimer's and my family are struggling to cope and tensions are rising. But after listening to you and Ken, I'm more aware now that I can be grateful for those I have around my table on Christmas Day, including my mum and the diminishing seconds she gives of herself. I, You know, I think that's that's exactly how I felt after watching the film. And I really am grateful to you for doing that for me as well, because I'm just thinking about how are we going to cope with this? Not thinking about I might be sitting with you next year, and my mum could be gone, or I could be gone, but my mum could be gone, and I will definitely not have thought about this. And that film made me think about the time I have with, with my, the, my family who are close to me, and it made me reevaluate my Christmas. Because I was going, oh, I might go away. I'm not, no, I'm not going to go away. I'm going to make sure I take her out. And I, I, we're getting more brand and Christmas is the worst time of year for me. I live on my own. No children. I'm really glad when it's over. Rosemary, we, we, we hear you and, and you have to go and see this film and you won't feel so alone. Was that, your, was that how you started
7: uh, the idea? No I don't think I went out with this intention and in fairness it was meeting the characters you know Jason said to me that day I met him Ken however bad it is this Christmas we still have to have hope and he and I remember and like you you know I wouldn't be a, a regular church gore, but the priest that opens the film brilliant yes he explained to me about Advent you know as being a season of hope that we are looking forward and I thought you know I kept hearing this word hope and then of course you meet all these characters who are on their own journeys or resilient in their own way and the one thing even as a filmmaker I wanted to do was give them hope
0: um, and you definitely do that by the way you definitely do
7: well you know we'll, I'm glad to hear that because you know it is you have to you understand that you have a responsibility as well you know with a film, look guess. it's a
0: roller coaster of a view you know 15 minutes in I was like oh my god what's happening here and then it sort of lifts it's, it's, I can't recommend it enough <laughs> but I, I love the way you brought the idea of being open and honest about the pressure around Christmas which I know loads the charities have been doing for a long time, but you've made it, you put it in, in my hands now and made me feel part of that conversation. So I, I have to say, well done. Was it difficult to get people to participate? Because it's very, very, very honest.
7: It is, of course it is. It's, it's complicated to find the people to kickstart. But uh, once you start meeting the people and you connect with the people and there's a synergy and a trust that you build up with them, then it's easy enough, you know, in in fairness to the people, they, you know, um, they went with it. Yeah, and it's very it hard to explain this because it's not me running around with a camera. There yeah. were nine other people behind me. It's yeah. not a very yeah. person, you know, so it's, uh, we went on a journey together and, you know, it's been a Another
0: t- The texts are going mad for you <laughs> Sorry uh, I've watched the trailer and think it's brilliant It gives us a little reminder to remember it's not all rosy in the garden for others at Christmas So uh, just a quick last question yeah. as you said I'm really sorry your mum passed away this year What will you do for Christmas?
7: Do you know? Well fortunately I'll adopt a mum because my partner's mum will come for Christmas Amazing. and the family and we'll have a lovely warm I Christmas I can see, I we'll can see do a
0: documentary it. called Adopt a I Mum <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much uh, uh, So this is Christmas is out in cinemas tomorrow My guest this morning is an artist and educator and a big fan of libraries and has made a really special donation to the City Library in Cork called the Slow Camera Exchange and she joins me this morning. Jessica Marb, good morning, how are you?
6: Very good, thank you Brendan. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm excited to talk to you.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm excited to talk to you. So tell me the Slow Camera Exchange, uh, what is it and and why did you set it up?
6: So the Slow Camera Exchange is a partnership with the Cork City Library and also with Cork Film Centre and it's a project that um, is allowing access to analogue photography. Um, So we have kind of a few strands and ways that people can engage. There's a strand for individual artists to borrow cameras. We've made some of the cameras into kits that facilitators and so, artists.
0: So hold there for a second, right? Because I, okay. I so I, I kind of get it now. But the slow camera exchange and just just a bit between that and explaining analog cameras to to the listener. So just explain that bit for me.
6: Okay, so an analog camera is a camera um, where the light exposes the image onto film. The cameras we grew up the with. The, the
0: cameras we grew up with. that's fair enough to say?
6: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> Would you say old-fashioned cameras?
6: Um, No. Yeah, that could be a way of saying it. But there's kind of a new trend that they don't seem so old-fashioned anymore. (laughs) hundred percent.
0: There absolutely is, yeah. So, uh, you have donated a lot of cameras, slow cameras. And is it okay to call them
6: slow cameras? Well, we've called the whole project the Slow Camera Exchange because I just like the concept of slow.
0: (laughs) Okay,
2: yeah. Um, We're in a very
6: fast moving time. I agree. I think analogue photography gives us a chance to it's a lot more considered process than digital, although I, I love digital photography. And as you know well. what you just struck
0: a chord at me. You know when you see somebody at a at a monument or on a in Santorini and they're taking hundreds of pictures with their iPhone, what I yeah. I, I I turned into this kind of crazy man who goes, You know, those ca- pictures have to be stored somewhere and that they are bad yeah. for the environment because they do get stored, don't they? So actually yeah. slowing down is actually good for the environment as
6: well. Yeah. And people tend, when they're using analogue photography, when the process is more considered, um, usually people frame one really good shot and take one really good considered shot rather than a hundred images. Okay. Um,
0: so tell us about how the slow camera stage came about.
6: So my husband who passed away um, five years ago now, I'm sorry. he was an avid photographer. He was crazy about cameras, <laughs> he loved the look of cameras, he loved the feel of cameras and he loved making images um, and he was a bit of an obsessive collector oh, of really? cameras so every all the travels we were on he'd be in flea markets and little old vintage shops and second hand places looking in corners for unusual cameras um, so it was something he was really so excited can about. Can I ask, was it
0: his hobby or his job?
6: Oh, it was his hobby.
0: Oh, very good. Okay, so he was really into it, really passionate.
6: Yeah, yeah. So a little bathroom in our downstairs was converted into a dark room. And he would build his own cameras. He'd find like... Lenses, maybe belong to a piece of printing equipment or a surveillance helicopter. And (laughs) we'd combine lenses with different camera bodies or build boxes to combine lenses with. So he was always building and inventing. um, And he had bits of equipment from all over the world. We both liked to travel. So so we
0: we call this the Herman Marb camera collection, is that correct?
6: Yeah. How many cameras are we talking? So in the um, collection, in the library, there's about 60 cameras. Wow. And some of them are for loan as individual cameras. And some are on loan as kits that people can, artists can bring to groups and engage groups and processes, learning to use the cameras. So each kit has a different type of camera. Some are medium format. Some are standard like 35 millimeter cameras. Some are little fun plastic pop cameras, you know, where you get four images or nine images on one image or fisheye lenses so there's a real range of um some cameras are very expensive Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. um, and very um technical and specific pieces of equipment and others are really fun cheap pop cameras right so there's a whole variety and herman loved both he loved the unexpectedness of like a blur or a glow that might come from like a plastic lens and he also loved the precision of images from really high quality lenses as well so So
0: he wasn't I guess I'm hearing in your voice you're quite into it as well
6: well I kind of watched him for years and was with him as he took lots of images. <laughs> so I kind of feel I was part of. Yeah. And, and, and we kind of consider, considered ourselves always as creative collaborators. We both worked in the arts. Um. And we, all, we always talked about our creative processes and influenced our, each other's creative processes quite a lot. So um, he was definitely much more skilled and had like the type of brain to go into the technicality of it. Um, but Sorry. yeah, I kind of feel like I journeyed through lots of processes with him. I can hear taking that. Taking images I t- you with t- him. You be-
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah I can, you helped him build a collection basically.
6: Well, I journeyed with him as he did. And I was actually the person who introduced him to the darkroom back maybe 25 years ago when I was in art college. Really? (laughs) He visited the darkroom with me one day um, when I was just learning darkroom processes. And (laughs) yeah, just immediately he caught the bug and started taking images and... Yeah, he went much further with it than I did. <laughs> I found other ways of creative to express myself creatively. Um So
0: before you tell me about the actual stage that people can do, can you tell me a bit more about Herman actually? What was he like?
6: Um <laughs> oh, it's hard in a in a short time to um describe a whole person and <laughs> a whole yeah. life. Um but Herman was um he was a very curious person. Mm-hmm. He had um Lots of different areas of interest, he was an avid reader, he was interested in art history, he was interested in philosophy, he was interested in science. He um, first trained as an electrician, then as a nurse, then as an alternative health pra- practitioner and then worked in the, worked in the arts um, supporting people with um, considered to have intellectual disabilities with their creative processes. He had a strong curiosity and um, he had a very specific way of thinking about engagement with creativity. He never considered the people he worked with to have disabilities. He considered them as creative collaborators. He had very specific ways of seeing the world and he was really curious and excited to see their creations. I'd say one of the words that would sum up a big part of who Herman was was curiosity (laughs) Um, and he had a way of of pulling together like different people and different ideas and different concepts to create something really interesting
0: he sounds amazing Um,
6: so he brought his photography to a lot of what he did and a lot of the work he did the group of artists he worked with went by the name of the gasp artists um and yeah, he used to, they had been in like a a day centre, like a service for people with intellectual disabilities. But his vision was to be in the city centre, where the artists would be part of the cultural life of Cork City, which they did become. Um, so yeah, they did a lot of visual arts projects and often his photography came into it as a way of engaging with people and a way of creating conversations so for example, I actually collaborated with him and his a project with a lovely little um, coffee shop called Alchemy on Barrack Street, where he brought in one of his big old-fashioned huge bellow cameras, large format, you know, that takes big 8x10 yes. images. And they had like a photo morning that the regular users of the cafe could have portraits made, either as individuals or with a friend or partner or dog. <laughs> um, and then they did a whole project where the artists responded visually to the photographic images. So the cameras were used as a way of making connections and initiating conversations and maybe like kick-starting other creative engagements and other creative processes. So
0: I'm hearing in your voice that he would really approve of the slow camera exchange that you've done now with Cork Library.
6: I'm pretty sure he would.
0: <laughs> so and so, how can people how can people get involved? What do you have to train to use the cameras? Is it difficult?
6: So there's kind of we've kind of planned it with a few different strands for people to engage in different ways. So the individual borrowing individual cameras is kind of aimed at artists who have some experience and some training in analogue photography so not not a whole degree or anything but have some experience of having hands and learning how to use the camera or even Being able to prove that they've (laughs) self-taught how to use the cameras. So that's kind of um, the camera club strand of it, where artists are going to use the cameras and exchange their stories and experiences with the cameras. Um, And then we have the camera kit. And the idea is that artists can borrow those cameras to engage with community groups. But alongside that, the library service, um, who are just incredible <laughs> in what they do and they have been putting on programs
2: mm-hmm.
6: so we've already worked with groups of teenagers we've worked with a 55 plus group up in the holly hill library and um, coming up now we have an artist who's exploring um you growing plants and using like inks are using like colour and making inks from plants and looking at how to combine that with more sustainable photographic processes. So she's initially working with artists and then the plan is early next year to do a public workshop to share some of the methods that they've been exploring. And, and I was going to ask you about that.
0: Is it difficult to get film processed and printed these days? How does that work?
6: Not really. There's lots of places that you can send it off. Um, I'm sure in Dublin there's places you can walk in easily to leave your film. Um, I think there's still a lovely place up on, um, is it John Gunn's on Camden Street?
0: Okay, so there is places to get film processed. Yeah, there are
6: places you can walk in and then there's lots of places you can post and have film processed.
0: It's a wonderful idea and people can get more information at the website, which is slowcameraexchange.com. Is that correct?
6: Yeah. And there's a little button to sign up to a newsletter if people are interested in hearing what workshops might be coming up or how to get involved. And 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 we actually have
0: it. I read here it's all about accessibility and inclusion, so it's open to everyone.
6: Yes, yes and there's different there's kind of different access points for different people some people yeah. will be through directly accessing the cameras others will be through workshops and being supported to engage with the cameras
2: Brilliant
6: So we actually have our next induction for um, artists who want to use the cameras coming up at the start of December and um, where an, ar- an artist, Artem Trofimenko will introduce all the cameras and let people put their hands on them and get you to... A texter here is
0: just saying you can cons cameras in Dublin do Fujifilm and Kodak and, this, and this, there's Kodak sh- uh, shops that print film as well so there's plenty of ways yeah. to get it print. Yeah, there's so, plenty uh, of options. So the uh, Herman Marb camera collection now available at Slow Camera Exchange and you can get information at theslowcamerexchange.com. Uh, Jessica Marb, thank you so much for taking our call and the best of luck Thank with you so it.
6: much for taking time to talk with me. really enjoyed it. Text
0: 51551.